a riddle wrapped in a mystery, inside an enigma, tied off with a who really cares? It's Kiddo's Nasty Notes. <laughs> Hello. I'm Sir Dr. Alex Sarand. Due to a gentleman's agreement and strict contract with his lawyers, I'm obliged to read Gibbo's nasty notes on this dreadful podcast. I'm a retired professor of Western civilization, marooned here on this godforsaken Pacific island. The lawyers do permit me to say that I have had a difficult history with Gibbo, and that I really do read these notes reluctantly. That's right, listeners. Each week, my conservative old Western Civ professor meets me at a studio to read aloud whatever I write for him. He also has a right of reply to defend himself. My name is Tarquin Gibbs, and my advice is don't make bets or gentlemen's agreements. Oh, and our no-nonsense Jane helps with the music and technical side of things. Enjoy. As you know, dear listener, Sir Dr. Alex Sarand avenged himself upon me last week by making me agree to compete in a quiz of his design. Sadly, surprisingly, I lost. Now, for five minutes of every show, I must read out some piece of conservative right-wing propaganda Sir Fallick has written for me. That said, he only gets five minutes of my show. Most of the time he has to read what I write for him, so I'm still on top, and we all know how much Sir Fallick hates that. Nevertheless... His minutes are mounting, the five minutes he won last week, plus the time he has every episode for his right of reply, means his presence is growing. His minutes mount, while his presence and back-end balloon. My advice is, don't make bets. Especially if you've already won them. Let me quickly recount what I got right and wrong in last week's quiz, before we move on to my punishment for losing. I got everything wrong. Question 1. Mary Wollstonecraft wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, not Malala Yousafzai. But let's face it, if anyone was to write A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, it would be Malala. Question 2. Who invented communism? It was Karl Marx, of course. I don't know why I said Jocko Sahato. He's not even a real god. Question 3. Who abolished slavery? Got it wrong again. The history books say the French. But if the French have taught us anything, it's that we can't trust history books written by the French. Question 4. Who first separated religion from state? It was John Locke. I thought it was the godless Mao Zedong, who loved a state to be even bigger than a very big god. Question 5. Which nation started the Industrial Revolution? It was England, not Israel. But what's the bet the Mancunian Jews had a bit to do with it? I've just finished Howard Jacobson's memoir, but more on that anon. Question 6. Who first gave women the vote? It was the Norwegians. That's right, the Vikings. The very ones who tied women to the prows of their boats when they entered locks to rape and pillage. Question 7. Gottfried Leibniz gave us differential calculus, not Musa al-Karazini. Question 8. And Musa al-Karazimi gave us algebra, not Gottfried Leibniz. Question 9. The Enlightenment arose in Western Europe. I said it arose in the Buddha. And last. 
Question 10. Who invented philosophy? I said the Hindus because the Rig Veda was written 1,000 years before the oldest Greek philosophers were doing their work. But no, Sir Alex said I didn't pay attention to the word, and that the word philosophy is in fact a Greek one. So they were, strictly, of course, the first people to invent it. Blurt. Sir Alec is so far right of centre, he believes modern Greeks have nothing in common at all with the ancient ones. He believes the real descendants of the ancient Greeks live in Cambridge. Anyway, I better get to it and read what the old dinosaur has written for me this week. It's a mean little piece about me being a self-identified comedian. Ho, 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 Tarquin, I'm going to enjoy this. Hey, Sir Alec, you know what's your bugger? Oh, Jane Laurie Anderson, you're back. Beep, beep, yep. Now over you, Tarquin. Loser. A former colleague and current ally of Sir Alex has emailed the show to ask, Gibbo, how can you identify as a comedian when you're not funny? Mm, We all know that Sir Alex wrote this. A rude little email from one of his fake accounts. (laughs) Now he's making me publicly reply to his email with words he's written for my mouth. He accuses me of being a self-identified comedian. That's right, Jane. Nasty. If anything, I'm more a self-identified poet or a self-identified novelist. I once even self-identified myself in a police lineup, But I am in no way a self-identified comedian. I pride myself on being humorless because nothing is funnier than staring blankly at some good-willed person's joke. Nevertheless, I will now read the words Cephalic has written for me. Words that he believes reveal my very soul. (coughs) (coughs) Dear Copper Knob, thank you for your email. Being funny is only one aspect of being a comedian. There are many others. I've cried on the stages of a thousand cruise ships that hired me to be their onboard comedian. I am very depressed. Are not my depression and my tears just as important to my identity as a comedian as being funny? No. My mother died when I was ten, and I had truly woeful drinking problems. I've barely half-survived a series of failed relationships, leaving me an Impotent, drooping fraction of the man I once was. I've had many jokes stolen from me, or rather, jokes made about me that stole into my private life. I, Tarquin Babyface Gibbles. Oh, Oh, you like that, don't you, you horrible old lech? I, Tarquin Babyface Gibbles. Submit deeply heartfelt poems to literary magazines, only to have them published in their satire sections. I paint portraits of women I meet casually and am, deep down, crippled by insecurity. Are not these all the traits of the genuine comedian? Every single one of them as valid as being funny? In fact, being funny is given disproportionate weight when judging the success of a self-identified comedian such as me. It is a truth well known that great humorists are seldom funny. This is because the best of them connect with something more authentic about the human condition than a joker ever will. And I've got pathos coming out the noose. Dear listener, I can feel you coming around to my perspective. You understand that people like me, Tarquin, are taking humour to the next level. That is... Beyond humour. I believe the day is approaching when humour will no longer be merely humorous, 
Comedians will cast off the constraining trappings of the comic. They will no longer be imprisoned by humour, shackled in laughter, forever caged by jokes. Jesters will at last become full human beings. So, sir, when you ask me how can I identify as a comedian when I'm not funny, I say to you, sir, in this dawning new day, how can I not? Sir Alec, I can't believe you use the word nuss. No, I'm trying to keep up with the young people. <laughs> Tro mission. 15 second scheduled intromission. Intromission. 15 second scheduled intromission. Intromission. 15 second scheduled intromission. 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 The duration of the sting, 15 seconds intromission, is in reality 30 seconds long. If this upsets you, then I'm afraid you'll never have a girlfriend. And if you do get lucky, then she won't stay with you for very long at all. Cephalic. One of your most honourable duties on this show is to take our listener through my toilet exercises. Each routine has an easy-to-remember name. The Long Jump, Astro Boy, The Yawning Chasm, Yonder Breaks, The Jiggly Quad Bike. If the listener has a Japanese toilet, she can enjoy music while doing my drills. With this in mind, I've made a playlist. Working out on the toilet to chariots of fire is my personal favourite. Da, 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 da. Kate Bush's Don't Give Up and George Michael's Careless Whisper are also great. But beware, it so happens that now I can't proceed without oralizing chariots of fire. Okay, Sir Alec, take us away. Please now teach the listener my toilet exercise yonder breaks. And Sir Alec, Viva Western Civilization! Today's menticize moves away from the long jump pit and out into the mountains. As usual, assume first position and wait for your seat to warm. See yourself tracking up a steep mountain. You are about to ascend the final peak. Now you're scrambling over the slipping shale, past the turquoise plunge pool and limestone sinkhole. Yes, past them as evocative as they are. Climbing, you feel gravity pulling back on you. Pulling down on your insides. Your feet slip, but then find purchase. And you cover several meters at a time swiftly. Lifting your torso, looking for a break in the horizon. You are rising, raising your head. Climbing, ascending the cliff with the rock climbers, steady mind and focus, 
inch by centimeter, metric by imperial, whatever works. It's working. Your tiptoe finds a lead sliver, fingernails clawing, heaving until you feel all the gravity slipping away behind you. And your head rises above the last blockage to see the clear, wide sky fall into your vision. To see, yes, yes, the light of yonder vista break. You feel charged and discharged all at once with a new sense of life. And you must, at this point, think of me, Sir Alex Sarand, and acknowledge the gratitude that is flushing through your body. Hooray! Menticized too, learned and done. And now you're ready for your day. In Gibbo's next toilet segment, I'll take you through Astro Boy exercise. Yes, it's an old cartoon, but as you'll see, it has its many merits. Poets don't drive. A small few hold a license from their youth when they weren't sure they were poets, like people who choose the wrong sex as their object of desire. License or no, poets never drive. If you suspect you're a poet and you drive, well, I'm sorry. For many of them, it is because they're alcoholics. Moreover, they always have an attractive consort to ferry them around because, as has been noted by anyone in the know, poets can pull. They pull more than just their poems. Although no poet drives many pilot. Fact two. Poets only eat chicken wings and never chicken legs. Occasionally they will have a slice from the top of the breast. No condiments. Fact three. Poets only ever use the half flush in all situations because they're nature lovers. See? They prefer panthers above cheetahs, antelopes to pangolins, and surprisingly, solstice over equinox. They travel third class and bathe every other night, but never by day. The most eminent poets use multicolored Bix pens and children's notepads for the different voices in their heads. But most importantly and most definitively, poets do not drive. Sing it, Sir Alex. Sing my philosophical war cry. No, I will not do it, Tarquin. Do you want me to post a link to copies of your now buried and positive reviews of Zadie Smith and Tanahassee Coates? Very well, then. A great voice without a great song is like failing to ring.
another rhinestone on my belt of tragedy. But now it is time for Root Words Hotspot. Hello listeners, Gibbo here. Root Word Hotspot is part of the show I keep to myself. When possible, I make Sir Alec read the words I believe are buried in his psyche. But I've grown attached to Root Word Hotspot, so here we go. <coughs> the words for today are embarrass and harass. Both of these words have their root in ass. When your ass is exposed, you feel embarrassed. Oh, get off it. Now you can't get elected unless you expose it, unless you're very comfortable exposing it. This explains why so many politicians are comfortable touching other people's asses, which brings us to the second word of the day, harass, as in, hey, Mr. Polly, stop harassing my ass. If you're harassed, remember the core of your being is unassailable. A political assembly is a collection of asses. Assimilation is pretending to be someone else's ass. Karl Marx said he'd never be part of an association that would have him as its member. Disassociation is when your top half loses its bottom half. Overassessing is an addiction. Assault combines insult with injury. A laxative cures an impasse. Assassination is when one ass jumps on another ass. Just look at the spelling. Assertiveness is the sign of a power bottom. A passive ass is a passenger. And class is for asses. I've arrived at the part of the broadcast I most fear. A stomach-churning dread comes upon me every time I think of it, but there is no avoiding it, for I am contractually obligated, and so now I will sing what I must. What fresh horror has Gibbo cooked up for me this time? Let me look at the notes. Oh, Lordy, I must sing love songs to myself, and Gibbo will review them and award each one the mark out of a hundred. <laughs> right, here we go. Did you ever know that I'm my own hero? I'm everything that I could want to be. I can fly higher than an eagle. For I am the wind that breaks beneath my wings. For I am the wind that breaks beneath my wings. Oh, Sirelic, that was brilliant. You really come alive when you sing love songs to yourself. I award the song 10 out of 10 and your performance 10 out of 10 too. Now hit it. We want to hear the next one. The first time ever I saw my face I felt the sun shine from my behind and the moon and the stars were the gifts I gave To the dark and endless sky Me, my own true self-love No, 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 Tarquin. I'm not going to continue doing this. The song gets ten out of ten, but you only get five for trying too hard. Sorry, Cephalic. As noted by Tarquin earlier, when I directed the School for Western Civilization, we always made it clear from the very first lecture that after much departmental research, we could not find a clear link of descent from the ancient to the modern Greeks. A fact borne out in any casual conversation with the modern Greek. 
However, we did find some intriguing evidence that suggests a very strong link between ancient Greeks and Oxfordian scholars. So there you have it. I could never be accused of linking the ancients with the moderns, nor of having any blood whatsoever in my penis. <laughs> Tarquin, that is the meanest thing you've ever made me read. How dare you disparage a man's genitalia? Mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Sir Alec, but you are a racist. I remember you in the Western Civ classes telling everyone you couldn't find a link between the ancient and modern Greeks. That's just nasty. Oh, I thought you'd want revenge after I won my belt, but that's a horrible thing to do to me. Oh, well, you can get me back next week. It's time to review David Sedaris. I read somewhere that he's middle brow. If he's middle brow, why is he so much better than everyone else? After reading Sidaris, one ventures out to find humorous writing by other writers, but always comes back to David for a fix. No wonder you never leaves. Sidaris reads a manuscript aloud and edits it 30 times before it's ready. He prepares, eats, digests, and then feeds the meal to you. The story about him as a boy licking lampposts is a masterpiece. However, sometimes, to use the American idiom, Sidaris phones it in. A self-declared hard worker, he cannot not sit at his desk and do a day's work. This regularity is what, at times, leads to his phoning it in. A case in point, a point in case, an example. David is sitting at his desk. He sees a bird outside his window. Then he writes... I see a bird out my window. Are birds a conspiracy? Gord, Trump made me want to get baked. When I feel that way, I always find myself in the bathroom, soothing my face in the cool water of the basin. That's when I spot wiry hairs in the bathtub. Some are thinner than others. I collect them into two piles, the thick and wiry, and the wiry and thin. One for me, one for Hugh. I mash up our pubic matter with water and old cardboard and make paper to send personal letters to our family and the hot drug users in jail. Hugh, is it time for lunch yet? Yes, David, it really is time for your lunch. In his book, Calypso, a mainstream publication, not miscellanea, Sidaris even gives us the pub joke about the famous musical duo, Bend Down and Phil McCracken. He might be joking, but I'm not. Sidaris is transforming before our very eyes into Dame Sally Markham, a.k.a. Barbara Cartland. Here's a reminder of how Dame Sally Markham works. She's speaking to her assistant. Grace, how many pages have I written? Only 76, Dame Markham. Oh dear, okay, okay, write this. Lord Hogarth entered the parlour and asked, Do you know the Bible, Lady Asquith? No, Lord Hogarth, I've never heard of it. Oh, Lady Asquith, it's really quite good. Let me read it to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and then they embalmed Joseph, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Grace, darling, you'll find the rest of the Bible on the shelf. Ooh, I think I'll have another chocolate truffle. And so, Matt Lucas and David Walliams give us a critical insight into the workings of the celebrity author, with Sidaris's musings on pubic hair and his openness to Phil McCracken jokes. It is true that Sidaris sometimes phones it in. Verdict. 
Sidarus's treasure. For proof, read A Plague of Ticks from his collection Naked. Thank you, listeners, for listening to the end of episode four. I've just returned from the end of episode eight, and I can assure you that the next four episodes are a profound improvement on the four that we've just finished. And thank you again so much for listening. The bar is low, but I'm still jumping. Our home is patreon.com slash gibbosnastynotes 